The podcast this week is brought to you by Peninsula Filmworks. Shocking stories, crazy stories, moving stories, but mostly authentic stories from the people of Door County. The craftsmen, the artists, the entrepreneurs, the characters. Peninsula Filmworks is dedicated to bringing you stories from across the county via exclusive video content available online at PeninsulaFilmworks.com, DoorCountyPulse.com, and on your social media platform of choice. Welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast, where each week we talk with the writers and editors of the Peninsula Pulse. This week, I'm joined by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for the Peninsula Pulse. How's it going, Miles? Going good, Andrew. Good, good to be here. Great. We are also joined today by Jackson Parr, assistant news editor for the Pulse. How are you, Jackson? I'm doing well, Andrew. Thanks for having me back. Cool. It's really good to have both of you in the studio today. Uh, we're going to talk uh, about a bunch of stuff, but let's let's back up a week and kind of fill in. We had talked about the triathlon last week for the Friday podcast, but this week we wanted to kind of explore it as an event. And, and Miles, you were working the triathlon the whole weekend. So what's what's the perspective, not as a runner, but as somebody who is coordinating and, and running the event? Exhausting. Yeah, um, I would imagine. It's uh, probably not as exhausting as it is for the people participating, but it's, uh, it's a long four days. Sean Ryan, uh, the director of the triathlon, and his staff, they basically create a, a mini camp there for a week. They move in Monday with a bunch of campers and trailers, and there's a big staff of probably 20 people who are down there for the better part of the week setting up what becomes just one big event space with stages and um, all the registration booths, all the the swim area is is a beast to set up. It's a, it's a different type of event, a whole nother ball game compared to the, the half marathon and some of the other things we put on. That water component adds a lot. And then uh, for myself, I work on the, the bike and run course and direct the kids triathlon. So I spend most of the week out driving all over the roads of uh, between Egg Harbor and, and Sturgeon Bay, marking the course, um, putting out signage, just trying to fix and clean whatever you can out there to make it as safe as possible for the cyclists and the runners and um, create safe passages for them even through like the village of Egg Harbor uh, for the runners at the end of the event. So yeah, it's a, there are a lot of moving parts. The runner's day starts at about seven o'clock in the morning. When were you getting up to go to set things up? Generally about 3.30. 3.30. And that's kind of standard for most of the crew, anywhere from 3.30 to five in the morning. Because yeah, it starts so early that you have to do a lot of prep work. It's a lot of hurry up and wait. You know, there are things that have to be done at certain points. Like you need to have that swim course ready to go for the swimmers first thing in the morning. So there's a lot of of lifeguards in there, a lot of uh, people setting up the course first thing. For myself, I'm out on the bike and run course very early in the morning, um, getting getting intersections closed off and marked. And then you got to hold on for a little bit and wait for people to go. Or, you you know, then once the bikers are out on the course, there's not a lot I can do other than, you know, issues always come up. There's... Maybe a volunteer doesn't show up at an intersection or an officer isn't there in t- on time or a uh, signs get stolen uh, or somebody. And, and Jackson's done this, too, with all of our bike routes. You mark everything and then you got to go out and drive it all again. And somebody's turned a left into a right or just remove the sign altogether. And that can throw off. Next thing you know, you got 100 cyclists on the wrong part of the route. Sure. My favorite thing is uh, I, I help set up the Century bike ride course up here. And uh, there's someone, I don't know who, but uh, we chalk the roads with 
uh, arrows, so little white arrows, kind of in addition to the chloroplast signs you see. Mm-hmm. And there's someone that uh, likes to take gray spray paint and spray paint <laughs> over those arrows. So in probably the four times that I drove the course for the spring century ride setting up uh, last June, I would drive the course and see that someone had spray painted over my arrows. So we had kind of this passive aggressive chalk <laughs> spray paint battle going on all week. But uh, I that's, think I think we prevailed. Well, and that's the thing too. I mean, you you set up the event area, the start and finish lines, but then especially for an event like the triathlon, you set up the course and the course is, you know, 50, 60 miles. Uh, it's, it's a lot to keep track of rather than, you know, a 5K minimal course routing a lot of times markers i love doing a 5k now after doing all these long events it's like 5k just is easy (laughs) Mm -hmm. well and you you were starting set up what wednesday before the try uh we started uh monday sunday and monday we start doing our official marking our, our first treks around the course and marking them with chalk just like jackson said and as great as 95 percent of the people and homeowners along the route and residents are fantastic and support the event and help out a lot. We get 300 volunteers, but there are some who for some reason hate bicyclists or they hate, they hate tourists. They hate anybody really. And they'll do things. They'll switch the signs out. There are some people who will let dogs out uh, as the cyclists go by. There's some people who, who just like hate cyclists being on the road. So there's same people who are totally fine with huge trucks and semis and tractors that take their toll on the roads. But they've got a problem with a cyclist using it for a few minutes here and there. Sure. Um, so we we that's generally the biggest stress point for us is those you know it might be ten people total. Mm-hmm. Um, most people are great. We have uh, I directly kids try and we have twenty some volunteers just on the the run course run and bike course alone that do a great job. Like the the kids try is so much fun that we actually it's it's probably the easiest place to get volunteers because it's so cool to see what, what these kids go through when they're very nervous at the swim start and they've got their swim cap on and their goggles and they're trying to be intense, but they're also like very, very nervous about going in the water. And by the time they come out, the smiles are on their faces. They're hopping on the bike They're Once they come in from the bike course, they're sprinting out onto the run course. And, and then then when they finish, you see these guys go from being super nervous to just um, so excited running around with their medal super pumped up. And now we see a lot of those kids coming back year after year. Mm-hmm. So it takes a lot of people to help that out, help us do that. And a lot of homeowners who are okay with us taking up the road for a while. And most of them come out and just cheer people on. Yeah. Uh, we were, we were filming both days for Peninsula Filmworks and as we would drive up and down the course, there would be people out at the edge of their driveways and lawn chairs clapping and, you know, cheering for people and with water bottles and, and all sorts of stuff. The, the kids try too. I wanted to talk a little bit more about, I, I was set up at the, the swim zone for that. And it's so much fun. Like you said, these kids just like getting themselves psyched out, but it's amazing how much of a motivator a high five is. Because that's like to get them from one place to the other. It was just, you know, holding up your hand for the high five and getting them to come through. Yeah, um, that was something we came up with in, in part for safety reasons, because the kids get so excited that they want to run and dive into the water right away. And they they would do it too soon where, where the water's only an inch or two deep. So they're just kind of belly flopping on the ground. Um, and by making them go in and give a high five, they're excited to do it. And to we, we station somebody just a few feet into the water, but it also makes them walk further into the water before they dive forward. Um, and then it, it's crazy. You probably saw this, but they have 
25 lifeguards for this very short kids try swim course. Oh, yeah. But when you see it, they need every single one of them. Because, sure. you know, a kid goes veering off course and we want it to be as safe as possible. But some of these kids are super nervous as they hit that water. They've never tried something like this. Um, but then they they really get into it. And once they come out of that water, you see that like that brightness come in their eyes and that sense of accomplishment of like, wow, I was really scared or I struggled out there for a little bit and I needed help from a lifeguard, but, but I made it back to shore. And it like is this little hurdle that they get over. Mm -hmm. Now, Jackson, you didn't compete this year, but I did see you at the event. Uh, were you there just to cheer on or were you helping out? I was, uh, both my sisters did the sprint and then they participated in the relay and the half iron. So, uh, it's always been kind of a family event for us. Oh, cool. Um, family so, of athletes just dominating. Uh, I guess. But yeah, I, I, I haven't done the last two years. We'll see if I ever get back into it. But uh, I'm sure there's always going to be someone I know out on course. And I'm, it's a great event. Even as a spectator, they do a really nice job. So I can always appreciate uh, spectating even if I don't participate. Mm -hmm. Well, and the nice uh, thing about how it's set up is you can start the day at the swim at the swim start line and then walk just through the park to where they're coming out of the water and getting onto their bikes. And then all you have to do is walk back to the swim start to where they're coming in from the sprint. So you can see every part of the run or every part of the triathlon without actually going out into the course. Um, we, well, and you're also sitting at the beach the whole time. Yeah, like exactly. It's, it's, it's a really nice... Like my sister comes up from Chicago, brings a couple of her kids. Her husband did the sprint try this year. And in between all this stuff, like my, uh, my aunts and uncles will be down there at the beach and they're just, they're just hanging out, either catching some shade, the kids are playing in the water. So it's, it actually is a great, a lot of silent sports events, bike rides, uh, runs are not necessarily great spectator events, but this one actually plays really well because you can just hang out there, enjoy music. There's tons of food. Yeah. You're at the ice beach. cream Sundays for the kids and stuff. Mm -hmm. so. They well, like to tap the kegs nice and early in the morning too, they which do. is always appreciated. Yeah. They we do uh, tap the kegs early. We, we knew there was one sweet lady who was at the Door County Brewing Company tent who would give us our beer just because we flashed her our badges, which was nice. <laughs> so I uh, took advantage of her a couple times. She was very sweet. I do have to say one thing about the, the try that I want to point out this year with the kids try. That was really cool is once they, they get in the water, I'm usually stationed starting them all out. And then once we get everybody in and out of the water, I'll ride my bike up and down the run course and see how kids are doing or hand out waters. And... It's some of these kids when once they hit the run course, they are really struggling. They're they're challenged. They haven't done something like this before. And there was one athlete, um, a girl probably around twelve years old, who was leaning on her mom and and crying and saying, "I can't do this. I can't do this." And her mom was urging her on and, and encouraging her. And what was great to see was so many of these other kids because it's an out and back course. So you'd have kids coming the other way, and these other girls and guys are are yell, yelling to this girl, you can do this. You got this. You're going to make it. You're going to get there. And like, I was actually a sap. I was like choking up on my bike watching this. Cause it's just so cool to see some of these young kids get that. Cause sometimes you see the adult races, you'll see that. And it really does help. And I, and you saw this, some of these girls that were struggling just kind of turn around and they're like, Oh yeah, I can, I can. And it, and it, their that encouragement from their peers seemed to mean more than even the encouragement from their mom or from, from the adults on the course. Very cool to see. Uh, one other thing I wanted to touch on with the triathlon, one of my biggest takeaways was seeing uh, Team Triumph doing doing their part of the race. 
Yeah, that's always heartwarming. So I've seen Team Triumph at the half marathon before. Um, and for those of you who don't know, Team Triumph is a group of athletes who help uh, disabled or otherwise abled athletes to perform in these uh, who otherwise couldn't participate. Um, and in the in the half marathon that I've seen, uh, they're, they're pushing the competitors in, I don't know the technical word for it, but they're kind of like a big cart. Yes. Or, um, yeah. with, you know, ball bearing wheels and stuff. And, and that's how they run the race. And they did that for the triathlon as well. Uh, but then for the bike portion of it, it's the same thing, except they're towing them behind on the bike. And then absolutely the most amazing thing I think I've ever seen is for the swim portion, they're towing them in a boat behind them, mm-hmm. which like swimming on your own for the triathlon is tough. And Jackson, you can attest to that. But to to tow somebody else behind you in a boat, that's got to be like 200 extra pounds that you're bringing with you in the water. That's It's astounding, the stuff that all these guys and, and girls do. Maybe that's your next challenge, Jackson, to get you back into triathlon. Will you be? Will you tow behind me, Miles? <laughs> yes. Will you be in the boat I will me? sit in that boat because I cannot swim. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was absolutely amazing. Um, I'm, I'm really impressed by all of those competitors. It was fantastic. What is your best... Uh, Best of the three legs in the triathlon. Well, I was a a cyclist in college. I was on the collegiate uh, cycling team, and so I kind of started there. So I was always last out of the water, oh, and yeah. then I would work to first on the bike and just like get picked off on the run. That was like my <laughs> my mo when I was racing early. Uh, but then I kind of evened things out. I'd still say I was the the weakest in the water. Um, that was my weakest leg. Yeah, but I I. When I was really racing competitively, I could still hang on to like the back of the front group okay. in, the, in the water and then hopefully move up in the bike and hang on for the run. So I know you've won the sprint. Have you done the half iron distance? Yeah, I've done the half iron probably five times, five or six times. Okay. I think the highest I placed in the half was actually two years ago. I got 11th overall. And so that was, <laughs> so I won the sprint on Saturday and then I, I did the half on Sunday and had a pretty good day. Yeah, that's a that's a decent weekend. Um, so when you do the the half iron, I've always been curious. When you're out on the cycling portion of it on on the bike route, there cyclists are going both ways, and there are some hairy intersections that we as as people setting up the course, we try to put out cones. and And the the scariest thing for us is when they're going both ways, and you come around a turn, are those cyclists going to kind of respect the space? I'm wondering, what does it feel like when you're on the bike? Do you is it pretty hectic or scary out there in some of those sections, or yeah, there's some sections that uh, you might cross paths with someone going 20 miles an hour in the opposite way. But uh, I mean, again, I guess I was a collegiate cyclist, so like I handling and taking used corners fast. Like I was always uh, pretty adept at doing that. Um, but I mean, there's plenty of people that are not, and so they don't <laughs> necessarily know. You know, stay far, stay as far right as you can. Respect the the cones on the turns. Maybe take these turns a little. A little softer, gravel's not your friend, that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. I always get nervous when we're setting things up. If there's even like a few pebbles on some of those turns, I'll get, go down there and I want to pick them up because I just, I envision worst case scenario. I envision someone hitting that and maybe a tire popping or hitting that and skidding just a little bit and now they're hitting another guy and now we got to pile up. And fortunately that, that doesn't happen. Um, the, the biggest, what seems to be the most dangerous part of the course is going through Sturgeon Bay in their roads that are falling apart on Memorial Drive. And it's, there's these potholes where, we try to mark them, but if we w- if we tried to mark every dangerous part in Sturgeon Bay on Memorial Drive, we'd basically just have to chalk the entire road. But 
on those turns, I just worry about like that little bit of skid or if there's a little bit of a sandiness or gravel of a cyclist just totally being taken out. Yeah. I mean, I've been that guy hitting the pavement a couple of times yeah. uh, back in my collegiate racing days. Well, cause you'd uh, be going 25, 30 miles an hour, correct? Yeah. 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 Uh, and it's, it's not fun. <laughs> not at all. Well, we'll try and keep you safe in the future. Well, moving right along, uh, we also talked last week, Jackson, about the Fish Creek Beach House. Um, there's been an update to this whole story. Uh, can you share with us, the two of you, about what's been going on? Well, as Jackson talked about last week, the voters resoundingly rejected a $850,000 beach bathhouse project. Basically, bathhouse, they're building bathrooms. And they met again on Monday, and Jackson couldn't make the meeting, so I went and covered that one. And basically, that the, the town board, the best description would be dejected. Um, it seemed like they were very surprised that voters rejected the proposal, and even more surprised that they rejected it by such a resounding margin. I think it was 153 to 58. Um, Do you think that surprise is coming you know, after some of these bigger projects have been approved and maybe that's kind of the wave that they were hoping to ride with the Sister Bay Beach expansion, the Donald and Carol Crest Pavilion, all very similar big projects that have just got passed in other villages. That, do you think that that has something to do with it? I, I think the surprise is more specific to Gibraltar's efforts and communication in that the board members feel like they've had tons of discussion and tons of meetings about this. And there has been tons of opportunity for people to give their input. And the way they've approached it is they've taken all these suggestions and really tried to incorporate all of them, haven't really weeded a lot of them out throughout the process. And they've tried to create something that made everybody happy. Several members mentioned that, you know, this was the plan that everyone told us they wanted. This was when we walked the village, when we sat at open meetings, this was the feedback we got. So that seems to be more why they're shocked that everyone rejected it. Now, on the other hand, they came to the voters with an $850,000 bathroom. That's, everyone knows you could get a heck of a house for $850,000. So why is a bathroom that expensive? And that's, right. that's the sticker shock that has um, hit everybody. And now granted it had heating and cooling, but so does a house. It had a gathering space. It really seems like where they aired maybe is vetting that design before taking it to the voters. Um, they did say, yeah, we had questions about this proposal, but they still went to the voters with it. They probably should have refined it before going to the voters. I don't, Jackson, you're there a lot more. Yeah, I, I would say, um, just in my subjective opinion, that the purchase of the property itself, the $1.4 million purchase of that additional beach property, passed on a very high margin. It was like 200 to 30 or something like mm. that back a year and a half ago, roughly when they approved that. So I would posit that maybe the town board took that as kind of a license to push the envelope on, on what the community wanted at that site. So, Hey, everybody is so happy with the fact that we bought this property. Let's propose a project that is maybe in excess of what you might right. see. Sure. Let's see how far we can go kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the impression that I would get to um, from what, I, what I've seen and read. And they now they, they're battling that instinct of like, okay, everyone said no by such a big margin. Some of the proposals, Steve Stones had uh, brought up the idea, let's do a modular structure, let's go real cheap, let's, let's bring it all back and just do bathrooms. Real basic, um, let's just get some bathrooms on that property and nothing else. And now people are concerned that they're going to go too cheap and then end up with possibly a very sterile, ugly building on that property. 
So there was a lot of comments from uh, uh, people at the meeting Monday about, well, let's not just throw something up and just have an ugly block in the middle of this, what's kind of supposed to be a marquee property now that they spent $1.4 million on the property. Let's just not put something ugly there. So now they're battling that instinct and, and town chairman Dixie Area said, yeah, we're not going to go that far. We're, we're still going to try and get something that has that sort of cottagey look of Fish Creek. But any any town in all the years I've been covering up here, they talk about, well, this is out of the character. We got to get something that fits with the character. But what the character of the town is in any of these towns is it often differs. The opinion on what that is differs from one person to the next. Yeah, and one it's board all subjective. Member. Yeah. I mean, some people see Sister Bay as a Scandinavian village, but that's really just because of Al Johnson's. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of Scandinavian character in Sister Bay, but to many eyes, that's what it is. Sure. So. Well, I mean, my perspective of Sister Bay is that it's kind of like the the hip young village. I mean, that's where the right. younger families are going, so that's how I see it. Uh, but then again, I don't have the the view that people, you know, 20 or 40 years my senior would have of, you know, Sister Bay 15 years ago. So Yeah, it's got to be pretty interesting for, for both you and Jackson to come up here and, and watch, and Jackson, you cover it from, on a very deep level, but to see the way politics plays out up here and you guys have kind of a new, fresh eye to it and without all that background and baggage to it, it's sometimes it's got to look somewhat comical. Yeah, it, it's definitely interesting. So will they be voting on the Beach House again? They will. They're, there's several aspects of the plan that are kind of going back to the drawing board. Uh, obviously, the, the, the bathhouse. Also, what they essentially the only thing they did decide Monday was that they're going to try and clean up what's there because they're not going to get anything built this year. So they're going to clean up some of the shrubbery and try to improve that the look of what where the the previous building that was next to the beach was standing at a very minimal cost, cut a couple of trees down. Then they're also investigating whether they they have a pier as part of that plan. And that pier was proposed to be kind of a um, a way to disguise this outflow pipe for stormwater runoff. But um, Vinny Shoma, who used to work for the Door County Soil and Water Conservation Department, actually brought up Monday that you don't need that that pipe to extend out onto the water because it actually won't do anything for water quality. So you can have that pipe right on the shore because they're putting in a, a vortex filtration system. So the water is going to be pretty clean anyway by the time it goes to the water. So that the pier is kind of now in question. So I think they'll, they'll probably end up with something paired way down. Um, Sister Bay is building a new bathroom facility uh, to ex- expand what they have at the Waterfront Park, the busiest waterfront in the county. And they're doing it at a cost of $125,000. So there's... Definitely some uh, question marks and what what Gibraltar is is doing and planning and, and how they're vetting that plan. Right. Well, and I think it was very clear from the first vote that the residents want a bathroom there. I mean, they do want some sort of beach house to be built. So it feels almost like this is kind of a uh, maybe a bartering kind of thing that's going on where uh, there will be a suggestion of one thing and it'll get voted down until finally everybody agrees on like this is exactly what we want. Does that kind of feel how it is? Yeah. Yeah. There's going to be some back and forth. They'll end up they'll end up with bathrooms there at some point or another. Sure. It just might be seven years from now. And I think it's important to note that uh, so this meeting of the town electors, which is kind of everyone's invited, I'll take a vote. That is only triggered uh, when the town wants to construct a building. So that is why everybody met last week to vote on the construction of the bathhouse. When the town comes back with another design, they'll bring all the town electors back in for one of those similar everyone's invited meetings. But the other aspects of the project, so like the landscaping, the engineering, 
uh, this proposed peer, that's really deference to just the five-member elected town board. So that won't quite be up to everyone for a vote. Just kind of an important distinction there on, right. on who gets a say on which aspects of, of the project. So the town board really has deference to most aspects of the beach project. It's ju- really just this construction of a building on the site that the balance of the town electors gets a say in. Which actually, Steve Soans had an interesting point when I talked to him yesterday. If they had left the original building that was sitting on that property that they removed because they, they determined that it would be too expensive to turn that into bathrooms, had they left that there and just remodeled it, it wouldn't have had to go to the voters. So had they remodeled that, and let's say it would have cost $1.5 million, even though it was a higher price tag than building new, they could have done it without going to the voters. It was just kind of a weird quirk in the way that town governments versus, like, Sister Bay doesn't have to go to the voters for any of those projects. So they can just decide and move forward. So just quirkiness in the way towns versus villages versus what kind of project it is, how you define it, and who, who gets to have a say. Coming up this week, we have a really cool event happening in Door County. It's the Door County Plain Air Festival. This is put on by the Peninsula School of Art, uh, and it's a, it's a really big event that brings tons and tons of artists uh, from all over the United States. This is going to actually start off this weekend, so right as this podcast is coming up, they're going to be gearing up for it, and it's going to go all next week. Miles, what do you know about the Plain Air Festival? So the Plain Air Festival uh, is now in its 12th year, and... I know this year I think they have 39 different artists who will be out around Door County um, painting in the plain air. And you'll see them at some of the classic locations. I'm sure you'll see them at Wilson's. You'll probably see them at those dilapidated barns I wrote about down on the corner of Highways 42 and 57. Uh, a lot of roadside locations, a lot of waterfront locations. And it, it's kind of cool because they're they're out in public painting and passersby, as long as they're not wearing like headphones and locked down on their painting project, they're encouraged to talk to the artists, find out what they're looking at, how their process works, what they're painting with. Some of them, they're, they all use different um, mediums. <laughs> um, and then uh, the one thing they say is like, do not like stand in front of them. If you see someone painting, don't like walk up and stand in front of them, start talking to them. They encourage you to stand like to the side and behind a few steps, give them space, give them space space to like step back from their painting and get a view of what they're looking at. But yeah, you're encouraged to interact with the artists in a way that you don't always get a chance to do while they're actually doing the creating. And like you said, it, it brings people around from all over the country and it has folks from the Peninsula School of Art will tell you that it has really raised the the reputation of the School of Art in right. Door County as an arts destination in general. Yeah. Uh, not only is it bringing really great and really renowned artists from all over the country, uh, but as you said, it has it has made Door County a an art destination um, because while we're bringing all of these people in, they're also raving about the location when they go back home too. Right. It's been it's become a recruiting tool for the School of Art also to get instructors. A lot of the people who came up here originally to paint in the Plain Air Festival are are now making it an annual thing to come back and teach a week long class or come back to Plain Air every single year. Um, I know there's uh, a writer from the New York Times who comes up and volunteers for the festival and then ends up writing stories about other things going on in Door County. So it's it's it started to have a, a wider um, impact than originally planned. And Door County is a really great place to paint, especially outside, because there are so many beautiful locations. Um, 
I ran into a bunch of planar artists while I was going through the ridges last summer. Um, many of them painting the the unique flora and fauna that lives in the ridges. Um, a lot of them painting the different streams and water features. Um, but yeah, I, it, it's a really great place to do it. And it, it's become a really big festival. Uh, it stretches the whole week long. So you'll be able to see artists out and about from... Uh, I think Sunday is when Sunday, they're kicking it off. July 22nd, it kicks off and goes through the, the following Saturday with the uh, quick paint contest. And you can find all sorts of information on where the artist will be painting at peninsulaschoolofart.org or .com. Or .net. It's .something. One of the three. Um, .gov. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, uh, so they, there's, some of the artists will go out and just find a spot kind of on a whim or uh, based on inspiration. But, at, at their website, you can also find specific locations. If you want to go and seek out the artists, you'll find specific locations each day that artists will be painting from, say, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. So it's it's not just like a hunt and peck and hope you stumble across them. That's great. But you can also, if you're if you're very into it and really want to seek out specific uh, people, you can look on their website and find them. Yeah, and the best part about it is if you have a specific location that you really love or you're out and about and you meet an artist that you connect with and enjoy what they're doing, at the end of the week, all of the art is put up for sale. So you can go to... Uh, there, they have a big end of plain air party where you can walk around and see all of the different paintings that were made, uh, and then you can buy them there too. So if you and, find and to think about that, if you're if you're in, if you're really into it and you go out and see something being painted, you might be able to purchase that painting later that week. And how often do you actually get to see somebody, a really great artist, um, a, a very well recognized artist? actually do the creating and then go home with that that same thing. That's right. pretty rare opportunity. Well, and not only is it a one-of-a-kind, but it's something that you've connected with, either in the location or with the artists themselves. Uh, you get to see it from start to finish, and then you get to take it home. It, it's, a, it's a really unique thing that you don't get a lot of places. And, and Andrew, you've been doing a lot of work with the Peninsula School of Art, filming a lot of their events for Peninsula Filmworks, mm -hmm. and speaking to a lot of these different, some of them plein air artists and other people involved with the School of Art, this really seems to be a mechanism that they've used to reinvent themselves and breathe a little life into the organization like any organization needs to do. That's not a knock or anything. It's just that I think they've been around about 50 years now. And at a certain point, you need to get a new interest level. You need to engage a different audience, a younger audience, and, and get yourself out in the community and not just sort of be stuck in your in your building or, or your performing center. Mm -hmm. And that's what Peninsula School of Art has really used this to do is kind of re-engage uh, a lot of different aspects of the community. Yeah, and it, it, there's an element to it. Many of the people that I talked to have spoken on how the Plain Air Festival elevates not just the the school, but Door County as a whole, um, making it that art destination that they've, they've always known it to be and have been pushing it to be since their inception. Many of the artists that we talk to who have been teaching there for years or volunteer there, many of them, their first experience was coming up for plain air. Um, and I think it speaks a lot to the county and the festival and the school that you have somebody coming in from out of state, participating in an event, and then relocating themselves up here to right. to teach at the at the school. Um, it's just it's it's this really great mechanism for cementing the professionalism and the renown of the school and the county as an art destination. It's a little similar to how Steelbridge has attracted so many musicians who now call Door County home who had never been here before until that festival and now they're some of the some of that younger demographic that we desperately seek to move up here. Uh, Matthew and I for the weekend primer this week are going to give you 
all sorts of different locations that you can check Plain Air out in, and we'll give you the dates and times for the auction and any other Peninsula School of Art activities that are happening this week. Uh, so I think that we're going to move on now to our feature, and we're going to pick back up here with Miles and Jackson right after the break. We are back with Miles and Jackson. Uh, Jackson, you and Jim Lundstrom are writing an article for this week's Pulse uh, that we really wanted to talk about for the podcast this week. Can you tell us a little bit about the subject matter and what you found out? So we wanted to speak to local uh, industry folks about the impact that tariffs are having on their industries, mostly their supply chains. Um, So I spoke to Chris Moore down at Northeast Wisconsin Industries, where they manufacture pretty much everything out of steel and aluminum that you can find in the world. And Chris basically said that the tariffs are tough. They're really putting a strain on prices for raw materials that they need to use to create the products that they then sell to their uh, customers. He was a little bit cautious to, to say, you know, we don't know how much of our raw material price increases over the past few months are due to tariffs versus just uh, limited supply because prices for these materials have went up throughout 2017, but they really started to spike in 2018 when all this talk of tariffs really went into place. The agriculture industry is really a place that's struggling with these tariffs. Um, commodity prices, so prices for milk and corn and soybeans, have been quite depressed, kind of towards that production cost level. So farmers are really having a hard time finding any profit as it is. So these added tariffs that make it harder to find export markets are putting added strain on those prices. I mean, I think I I do a weekly roundup of commodity prices in the pulse and soybean in particular, which uh, China implemented a a rather large tariff on. Soybean prices kind of went further in the gutter, which nobody quite thought was possible. So Jackson, can you can you back up real quick and just explain what tariffs are and, and kind of how they work? So basically a tariff is when a country adds a added tax on an import. So the United States wants to sell corn to Canada. And Canada says, well, for every unit of corn, we're going to add a 10% tax, which makes Canadian consumers of corn less likely to purchase U.S. corn. So it's really, it really works to put up trade barriers between countries. Generally, in this day and age, most people are proponents of a kind of global trade policy. Um, Costs for shipping and basically the transmission of goods, whether they be physical things you can touch like corn or trade of information, is totally rampant. I mean, globalization is basically on our doorstep. So the idea being that you can't really stop globalization. Countries are going to trade with each other. Let's bring down the walls, promote a kind of a free market system. And I actually spoke to Governor Scott Walker on Monday at the grand opening of the Farm Wisconsin Discovery Center, which is kind of an educational agricultural center outside of Manitowoc. And he said, you know, the goal should be free trade, no tariffs all around It gets particularly sticky in the dairy industry with Canada because Canada does have these protectionist measures that really work to keep a lot of Wisconsin dairy products out of Canadian markets, basically functioning as a tariff or a tax. So there's kind of an interesting battle going on there. 
these tariffs that have been imposed over the last month and talked about for the, all of 2018 are a bit at odds with the Canadian Dairy Supply Management Program because that essentially functions functions as a tariff. Scott Walker talked a little bit about that, saying, you know, there's all this talk about tariffs right now. You know, talk to those 50-plus farmers last year who lost their dairy contracts when Ontario decided to cut off their import market of Wisconsin dairy. So mm-hmm. really the bottom line is there's few people that think tariffs are a good idea. They're kind of a policy tool to... It's a protectionist tool to protect your own uh, national um, industries. I guess the idea in support of them would be if we impose a tariff and reduce the amount of goods coming in from other countries, then our producers at home will produce that and do and make our economy better. But there's so much more nuance. And that's what it sounds very, very simple on the surface. Right. But then you get the nuance of, all right, if we're going to impose a tariff on Chinese steel and think that we're going to produce that ourselves. Well, now we've raised the cost of steel for all the people who produce anything with steel in the United States, such as some of these companies in Door County. We don't think of this tariff debate as a local issue that often. So this was really cool that that Jackson and Jim dove into this and talked to some of our local industry leaders because it does trickle down, just like the immigration debate trickles into Door County. These tariff discussions do have an impact. I mean, we have some major manufacturers in the Sturgeon Bay Industrial Corridor who who actually do have to grapple with this. In this office, in the Peninsula Pulse, we have to grapple with it. We had paper prices going up 15% this year before any of the paper tariffs were put in. But when President Trump enacted the tariffs on Canadian paper, our prices increased double that. So our our cost of just putting out the paper each week goes up substantially. So when we talk about these things and they're on the, the nightly national news, it really does come down and, and, and hit economies locally and hits pocketbooks locally. Right. Well, even as you, as you said, with uh, immigration reform, we have, we have tons of J-1 visa students who come into the county every year to work. Um, and without them, I mean, who knows how, how much harder businesses would be struggling to keep their doors open. In the summer, there's just, there's so many people up here and there's not enough local workers to keep things moving. We, we really do need that, that program. Um, so, yeah, as you said, it, it, these things, these big macroeconomic policies do affect us very locally too. Uh, Jackson, can you talk a little bit about that specific? Jackson, can you talk about the the local effect that these tariffs have been having? So particularly at uh, NEW Industries in Sturgeon Bay, Chris Moore said their prices have gone up in 2018, roughly 10 to 15%. Again, he wasn't quite sure how much to allocate that to the tariffs and how much to the general lack of supply. I mean, the economy is pretty hot right now. You can drive around anywhere and see the buildings are going up. There is a a demand for these kind of raw materials. So that that plays into this as well. But Chris talked a little bit about the hardest part of this all is really not knowing what's going to happen in a month. I mean, earlier in the year, even when these conversations about trade barriers were going and were, were happening, he said about a month ahead, I would still know how much I was going to be paying for steel to come in. I talked to him about a week ago, so mid-July, and he said he still didn't know how much his materials were going to cost in August. So how then does he go about charging his customers for the 
products that are going to use these raw materials. It's yeah. it just it I'd makes hate- it tricky to really to plan out yeah, or to budget anything. Yeah, I'd hate to be a, a chief financial officer right now or or anybody in charge of uh, doing any sort of long-term planning or even short-term planning for any major <laughs> company in any industry right now. And builders are talking about the price of 2 by 4 skyrocketing, and that actually has very little to do with tariffs. That's just because of kind of cyclical economic, uh, the, the boom in building, but also wildfires and hurricanes taking out a lot of the forestry stock. But there's so many aspects right now that that must be just a, a huge headache for budgeting. One thing I think that is particularly interesting to me about the tariffs is um, we think about them as being a very an economic tool for countries to employ in diplomacy. But these tariffs in particular, I should say the retaliatory tariffs that have been placed after the United States put in their own tariffs have been highly political. So other countries have put in tariffs on Kentucky bourbon, on motorcycles of a certain power, call it Harley Davidson, cranberries, products that have their standing in states that supported Donald Trump in the 2016 election. So one could infer that they're trying to hit the base of that Trump support at home with mm-hmm. these tariffs. I mean, Kentucky bourbon, how how oddly specific can sure. you get with tariffs you're imposing? Um, so that's really kind of an interesting political bend to it, which goes beyond that either idea of protectionism or of globalization. I mean, there's there's a lot more diplomacy that's involved in all this which probably gets a little further away from the Dora Peninsula, but the lasting effects on all that do hit home. Right, yeah, it's interesting to look at them as both a shield and a sword. You would think that they're set up to bolster economic activity, but, you know, as you said, they can definitely be used in a way to influence or maybe even punish things that you you don't necessarily agree with. Is there anything else on this article that you want to share with us, Jackson, this week? So Jim Lundstrom, the news editor who I I wrote this piece with, uh, talked with Jack Heineman at the Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection in Wisconsin. And uh, Wisconsin doesn't really have a lot of power to do much with this global trade. I mean, the state itself can't implement its own tariffs or Mm -hmm. take down tariffs that are implemented by the the federal government. But uh, Governor Walker's administration has made efforts to kind of make inroads in other markets around the world. So they're actually, in August, they'll be bringing in representatives from South America, the Middle East, to try to build relationships in these new markets, hopefully with the goal of increasing their exports to those countries and thus finding new markets for Wisconsin products that have been shrunk due to these tariffs. So there's not much that the state can do, but I, I guess they're they're trying. Um, we'll really just have to see how long these tariffs last. And the, in my conversations, one of the biggest challenges with tariffs is not the tariff itself, but the relationships that they constrain, not geopolitically, but within industries themselves. So soybean farmers in the Midwest have a buyer in China and they have a good relationship with them. They have a streamlined system to exchange those goods. When that machine stops turning, it's kind of hard to get started to go on again. Mm-hmm. So the, the real concern is that even if tariffs are lifted, there'll be a, a dearth in the relationships that have been built with this free trade that American producers will kind of have a hard time building back up again. Right. Because as these tariffs are implemented, those countries that need those goods 
they're turning elsewhere. They're building relationships with other countries who don't have these trade barriers. So yeah, and if you burn the bridge, then how how are you going to rebuild that kind of yeah? Thing? So that's another kind of concern that goes with the uncertainty piece that Chris Moore talked about. Or some of these industries are saying, or or industry leaders are and business owners are saying, we might just go out of business. Like they're sixty million dollars over a couple of months is enough to tank some of these guys. So they're they're saying, well, not only will we lose the business elsewhere, but I'm just going to get out. Well, I'm really looking forward to reading that article, Jackson, that you and Jim are putting together. Uh, Really interesting stuff. Thank you guys so much. I think that's going to do it for us this weekend. Uh, Miles, Jackson, thank you for hanging out with me and chatting. Thank you. Appreciate it. These stories and more will be available in this week's issue of the Peninsula Pulse, available throughout Door County. For more headlines, visit doorcountypulse.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast for your weekly Pulse picks, interviews, and exclusive content from the Peninsula Pulse. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.